Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the important China news just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and this week on Seneca, we bring you a conversation that my co-host Jeremy Goldcorn taped back in November of last year when he was in his native South Africa for the Africa-China Journalists Forum, where he spoke to Dr. Bob Wukesa, a postdoctoral fellow at Wits Journalism in South Africa, and to Barry Van Wick, who is project coordinator of the China-Africa Reporting Project at Wits Journalism. Enjoy the podcast, and over to you, Jeremy. Barry van Wijk and Bob Wilkesa, welcome to the Seneca podcast. Today I've spent a really interesting day with you and some of your guests at the Witwatersrand University Africa-China Reporting Project. Uh, there was a forum on journalism uh, connected to the story of Chinese involvement in Africa and African involvement with China. Uh, journalists from all over the continent and from China speaking about all kinds of issues. Can you give me a little bit of background about this project? You know, what is it? What do you do? And, you know, how was it conceived and carried out? Uh, hi, Jeremy. I think the basic idea of the Africa-China Reporting Project is to support and enable African and Chinese journalists to do journalism on what we now call Africa-China. Um, this event today was really about putting Africa first. You know, it, you know the, the more common designation is China-Africa, right? Is this what you might commonly hear? But for us in this project, we've now changed it to Africa-China as in to put our African location, our African orientation, and the African interests that we have at heart to put those first. So this was this event today, the Africa-China Reporting Project. We, in this project, have an event every year in which we bring journalists, African, Chinese, foreign journalists together in one place to actually talk about the work that they do. And that is the event that you actually, Jeremy, as you were the MC of that event today. And that's actually what we had today. So you were asking me about the um, the project. The project is a few years old. It's uh, Yeah, I should, you know, in the interest of full disclosure <laughs> admit that i was the mc of your event you, you today, were there so, you know i'm involved i'm not an, an objective journalist in this case yeah, yeah so so the the what we now call the africa china report, reporting project is really um now it's about five six seven years old um what we do is we support african and chinese journalists to do journalism on africa china um as we know, the Africa, you know, the phenomenon, as we might say, of China's engagement with Africa is a very common thing. It's a very, it's a very well-known thing. It's what everybody knows about, and yet it's something that not many people really understand very well. There's really a lot of information out there and a lot of misinformation as well. Um, 
And this is really what we're trying to address in this project, to really support journalists to do proper journalism, to do good, well-researched, well-thought-out, you might say, journalism. Um, So we do this via a few activities. We give reporting grants to journalists all over the continent and Chinese journalists as well. Um, We uh, provide a network for them to engage with each other. Uh, We uh, we provide events like this. Um, We um, do reporting tours, direct engagement. You know, if you can actually get journalists from China and from Africa to directly engage with each other. So we uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a workshop for Chinese journalists in which we had about 10 Chinese journalists here in Johannesburg for two weeks where we had lectures and training and the direct engagement for these journalists to really understand, engage um, is really one way that we thought this is a good way to actually advance Africa-China journalism for actually for this journalist to do proper journalism in um, a direct sense. So um, so what is the worst, you, you mentioned misinformation, what, what do you think is the worst, and either of you take this question, what is the worst kind of misinformation out there? Because, I mean, from my perception, you have two types of really bad media narratives. On the one hand, you have China as the evil new colonist who's coming to Africa and is going to be, you know, worse than the European powers were and basically exploit Africa for her mineral resources and leave nothing behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the other narrative which is that oh this is the most wonderful thing you know china and africa together and both as victim you know former victims of colonial oppression this is going to be hunky-dory and uh, you know nothing will go wrong and uh, in between uh, maybe there's not so much uh, but i mean that's my perception what would you the two of you say were are, are the worst types of well, wrong stories the thing is that China and Africa, China and the role that it's playing in Africa, it operates within these broad narratives. It's just inevitable that it is seen this way because of the history that we have with colonialism on this continent. China's role is inevitably, inexorably seen in the same light. And that's really part of the problem. That's where the problem begins because now you know, that is immediately where you start from. That is any, how, how anything that China does in Africa is interpreted in that, in that vein. So, for example, you take the issue of language. You know, it's, a, it's an emotive issue in this country on this continent. Inevitably, if Chinese is now a language that is being taught in South African schools, as many European other languages, other European languages are taught as well, um, in, inevitably, this is now suddenly a controversial issue, and it is seen within those broad sort of, you know, one can say pseudo-colonial narratives. Yeah, so I, actually, in our at project, the forum today, was it Philip Devet, the associate editor of the Melon Guardian, was saying that the perception of Mandarin lessons being introduced into South African schoolrooms reminded him of, I mean, he, he, he didn't say it directly, but I think he was talking about black South Africans being forced to learn Afrikaans at school in the apartheid era. You see, that's the, that's the kind of narrative that you start from. That is how these things are interpreted. So it's not really possible to, ju- to do just straightforward reporting. Inevitably, there's some sort of backstory that has to be told, the journalism that has to be done here. In this project, and I'm just quickly going to link this to the Africa China, Africa China Reporting Project, what we do with this particular project is not to start from those narratives. What we do is to enable journalists to start on individual cases. What is happening in, a, in an individual case? So in this project, what we do is we try to bring out the voice of the communities, the voice of the people that are undergoing, the people of this continent who are undergoing this phenomenon of Africa China engagement, the thing that's happening to them and in them and by them and through them. So can, and we can, let's the, talk the about stories. some specifics. Uh, can, can, you, can you maybe just yes. briefly introduce some of the interesting stories that have uh, have been done on, under the auspices of uh, I can, your project? Um, some, some that come to mind immediately is, um, you know, there is 
a few really interesting and good stories that can be told on China. You know, there are, there's, there's some good ones and there's some bad ones. There's good things happening and there are bad things happening. One of the good stories that are happening is in the area of public health. Um, in West Africa, for example, we had a few journalists who were reporting from West Africa, and they actually go to these hospitals that China has built. And these, you know, we had a journalist in Cameroon who went around the hospitals that were being built there. For many people in those areas, these are the first well-built hospitals that they have access to ever. You know, this is just what is happening. This is some of the good story that China is able to tell here. People have access to medical care. Um, I'm thinking now of a particular case from a journalist who reported from Cameroon, actually visited these hospitals, spoke to the people who attended these hospitals. And this is actually one of the good stories that one can tell about China in Africa. On the other hand, um, talking about Cameroon again, we had another journalist who did a story about uh, logging, uh, you know, logging, uh, you know, wood and logging and uh, this, this sort of thing and how Chinese demand is creating this illegal activity of logging that's going on it's actually really damaging to forests in Cameroon this tells you just example is this just one, one one sort of interesting example of how in one country how various things are happening contrasting things are happening good things are happening bad things are happening and ultimately what we try to do with this project is to get away from the overarching narrative and to get down to the individual case so more you 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 more individual cases so healthcare get another one uh healthcare well Healthcare is one issue. Healthcare is happening in several countries. We had another case of healthcare that is happening in Zambia as well. But, you know, other cases that are happening as well. Bad or good? I, I'm not asking for positive examples. I, I think there was a case in, there's a case in Uganda where one of the, you know, journalists that we funded and, uh, you know, gave um, support was looking at a copper mine that had closed many years back with the arrival of China, uh, Chinese funding, they, they were able to then, um, you know, kind of um, revive the, it's, it's called Kilembe Mines in uh, western Uganda. Uh, and, and so with Chinese funding, the, there was a revival of these uh, huge mines. Now the, 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 the journalists approached the story by speaking to people who had worked at this plant when it had British funding and uh, spoke to them about how they were feeling, uh, what it portended for them, what it meant for their future. And uh, essentially, there was lots of excitement at the possibility that, uh, you know, the mine will roar back to life after almost a decade plus of being out of action. The big story that I think we had today at the forum, and which is also a big one in East Africa, is the so-called SGR, which stands for Standard Gauge Railway, from the port city of Mombasa through Nairobi towards you know, the, the, the rest of uh, the East African region. And equally in this case, uh, some of our grantees have actually gone to speak to Chinese workers there or people who live by the side of the railway who are affected in one way or the, or, or the other. And, and therefore, through that, this huge narrative, this big story, this monolithic story of Chinese funding for this huge railway is broken down into the lives of the people mm. that get impacted, get affected. And I think we could go on to, you know, stories we've commissioned in Zimbabwe, uh, on, uh, you know, diamond minerals in Ethiopia and industrialization and the people who are benefiting from it in Tanzania and, uh, you know, Tanzanian farmers were involved in supplying cotton to Chinese-built factories and so forth. And as, as my colleague uh, mentioned earlier, our insistence is that these stories must have a local grassroots human 
element so that we, we, we break down this monolithic, huge, big story of uh, pernicious and gigantic China coming to eat African lunch, as it were. So, so yeah, this, this, and then we have well over 50 stories that we can talk about. And how about the different attitudes of the journalists involved? Because, I mean, you, you give grants to Chinese journalists and African journalists. Is there a gap between the way they look at the work of reporting and journalism? And, you know, how different is it perhaps from journalists from Western countries, from the United States or, or Europe? I think one of the things that we've learned from the project over the years is one, that uh, you can actually talk generally of nearly a Chinese approach, an African approach, a Western approach in very generic terms. However, as came through today at the forum, and I think this is a thing that I can attest to as well, individual journalists can stand out in different ways. But if you want, you want generic approaches, one of the things that we've learned is Chinese journalists usually tend on arrival to want to contact officials, you know, uh, for their stories as their sources and so forth. In fact, there's a project that we had here in 2010, which was really the first instance. And it so happened that it was over the period when we had World Cup here. So, you know, at Vith Journalism Department. And, and so we tried to pair uh, our Western Chinese and African stories to do one story related around the World Cup in South Africa. And, 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 uh, and it quite did work well because the approaches uh, were very different from uh, the various perspectives. Chinese journalists wanting to look at, to speak to officials, Western journalists wanting to just go straight into the street and speak to anybody they fi- found, and African uh, you know, journalists kind of lost in between those two perspectives. And, and, and there are four I think this has, and again, if, if, if you look at the stories, uh, you know, Chinese journalism is more, even from the ones that we've done at the project, they have this flair of writing in futuristic, uh, you know, you know, k- kind of, uh, way. I mean, uh, high flown, uh, stories that are just very almost poetic. And, 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 uh, you find that, uh, you know, many of the Western, uh, journalists that we've, and Western is also huge. There could be individual differences. But, uh, as a generic, uh, comment, uh, the, the Western journalists then seem to be, you know, hard hitting to the point without much of, uh, too much flowery language and so forth. And again, uh, African journalists will be lost in between there. And, 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 um, I think the final point one wants to make is that we must appreciate that there are limits, uh, that, uh, kind of hamper Chinese journalists from going the whole hog in this whole investigative journalism arena. And, and, and I think this remains an impediment in some instances. However, we have gotten quite some interesting revelations, some interesting insights from Chinese journalists because of their, you know, being well-placed to access certain sources that not other journalists can access. So in Africa, they're able to do things that African journalists possibly aren't. A good example is actually this whole uh, rhino horn and uh, elephant, uh, you know, tusks uh, story. Uh, Chinese journalists are able to, you know, you know, access and uh, reach, you know, uh, you know, kind of uh, develop rapport with, um, you know, merchants, mostly sometimes quite often uh, Chinese that are involved in the trade, in the illegal, you know, criminal trade. And we're talking now about Shri, who is either before or after this podcast going to be on our podcast, yes. uh, who worked with the Namibian journalist John Hrabler, right? 
Right, and in yeah. fact, in, a, in, a, in, the, in, the, in the other case, one of our associates and um, a fellow of the project is uh, Hong Xiang, a very well-known Chinese journalist who has set up actually an NGO in Nairobi pursuing these matters in various other, you know, approaches, who equally bust, uh, you know, this uh, kind of rings uh, and, and, and this uh, kind of um, underground uh, criminal business uh, in Rhinohorn and so forth, here in Joburg and elsewhere. So, yeah, the advantages on either side. And you work with journalists from Chinese central state media, including the People's Daily, for example. How, how, do you, how does that work? I mean, w- what do you think they get out of it? And, and what good does it do journalism on China-Africa issues to involve people who write for, say, the People's Daily? No, I think the point uh, that we make very clear for the project is that we are non-judgmental. We are value-free. We do not say state media is good and uh, private media is, is, is not good or vice versa. So we, we kind of work with all journalists from uh, state media and from non-state media. Um, and and uh, the thing is that uh, by working with uh, journalists from uh, CCTV, from People's Daily and, and so forth, we get perspectives on where they are coming from. Uh, if we treated them as pariahs or people that we don't want to engage with, we will actually lose out on, on, on perspectives on how they approach things. Uh, in fact, we treat the project as a platform for uh, discussion, engagement, exchange of ideas, and so forth. And through this, in fact, one of the things that, um, one of the projects that we've done in the recent past has been to work with People's Daily to put together uh, a Chinese business and South African journalists forum where, you know, very candid discussions were, you know, took place. Uh, and, and this actually then, uh, you know, helps South African journalists to understand where Chinese business come from, for example, in not reaching them to make comments or not responding to their queries. On the other hand, people's daily and Chinese businesses will understand where South African, uh, you know, journalists come from, what drives them, what motivates them to write the way they do on matters China in South Africa. So I think we are, we are, we are open and that applies to Xinhua News Agency, to CCTV Africa and so forth. What do you think are the biggest issues facing Africa in its dealings with China that need to be addressed by the media? No, I, I think one of the biggest um, you know thing is which we are still battling with. In fact, we are still. In fact, for people out there, we are very keen to understand how if they have any perspectives that we could infuse into the projects to sort out this. Um, you know, flattening the narrative into this whole big of um, a gigantic. China coming to Africa with ill intentions, you know, a pernicious China that is, uh, has no benefits for, for Africa. And this often rolls out into prejudices of, of for example, China as Yellow Peril, China as Dr. Fu Manju, uh, you know, you know, China as, uh, you know, just flipping uh, things from where the West colonialists left it to, you know, kind of take out African resources without any returns or, you know, uh, positives for Africa. On the other hand, there are also 
you know, kind of positive, um, you know, stereotypes, you know, because stereotypes can be negative or positive. The positive ones will say, you know, China is Africa's savior. Um, China means only good. China is a win-win partner. You know, there's the language of mutual benefits, of, <laughs> of, of, of reciprocation and so forth, yes. which are also huge narratives that we try to break down and how we actually want to do this and what we've actually been um, doing for the last couple of uh, months is to insist on a human grassroots approach. Where is the evidence and where, where, how does it affect the people? In fact, that now explains why we have a new logo that's based on the Chinese character of, of, of Ren, which means personality, you know, people, humanity, and so forth, which is very closely aligned, allied to the concept of Ubuntu, which is uh, African, also meaning the same kind of uh, huma human uh, nature. Uh, Ubuntu folks. is more than human nature, though, isn't it? It is, I mean, Ubuntu, yeah. I mean, well, can you explain Ubuntu? Because most of our listeners won't. I mean, I think one of the one of the key understandings of uh, Ubuntuism or and Ubuntu is is, is that um, in fact it's captured in a, in a sentence in a, in a statement where we say a person is a person through another person. Mm. Yeah. I am because we are. Yeah, uh, you know, and and that when wherever you do anything, you must put the interest of the other person in mind. And uh, you know, so that you wouldn't want to do anything that will hurt the other person, just like you wouldn't want to the other person to hurt you. And 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 uh, therefore, it's a culture of sharing, of commonality, of focus on mutual interest rather than the individualism, which I think Western societies have been, uh, you know, criticized. <clears throat> so, so is this in fact a point of commonality between African cultures and and Chinese culture? the fact that the individual is not privileged in the way it has been in the post-enlightenment West and particularly in the United States. I'll say I'll say yes and no. In fact, you see, it's a very complicated thing. It is it, it is the similarity of concepts uh, between Confucianism generally, uh, as represented uh, in a, in, a, in a sense through the Ren, um, you know, character, as well as Ubuntuism. There's similarities there, but don't you forget that uh, both the Chinese and African societies are undergoing very fast-paced dynamics where the West has some influence on both of them. So in a sense, in a sense, you, you, you actually say, yes, traditionally, Africa and China have same uh, kind of similarities in the, the, in, in the focus on common interest, communal, com communitarian, um, you know, considerations. But, but you know, what makes it even complicated is that we shouldn't even uh, dismiss the West as entirely being individualistic. You know, you know, there, there's some... Uh, yeah, I mean, the West know, invented communism after all. Communism so. is, is, is also based on, on the same. Yeah, yeah. So I think it is, I, I mean, that's the whole point, that we take certain symbolic considerations. Ren is a Chinese, recognized as a Chinese, you know, communal kind of approach to things. Ubuntuism is recognized as such. If we have any other Western concept that, you know, goes in that direction, well and good. Uh, but if you look at ideal, typical considerations, West is much more individualistic, in my opinion, than it is focused on matters community. I think, yeah, that uh, you wouldn't have any argument from me on that. Okay, last question for both of you. What is the favorite story, you know, just personally, your favorite story that has come out of your work on the Africa-China reporting project? 
I think my most, uh, my favorite story will be Hong Xiang's uh, busting of uh, the Rhino uh, syndicate in uh, South Africa to the extent that it actually broke a story. There had been, uh, you know, cases where, um, you know, a number of Chinese, Vietnamese and, you know, East Asian uh, syndicates had been busted and people taken to court, sometimes left, let off the hook and so forth. But um, uh, I think we hadn't got quite gotten a, a situation where a journalist goes undercover and actually goes and, you know, pretends to be one of the persons that wants to buy Rhino and so forth and is given access and takes pictures and then eventually all this go into print and we have some evidence. For me, it was a very powerful story. Um, and I think perhaps the other story that has uh, really made sense to me is the SGR story, the standard gauge rail story that was done by Alan Olingo. It was quite a fantastic piece and is a recent one. I mean, it, to the extent that... Moses it, Wasamu. Uh, Moses Wasamu, actually, yeah. And it went, because it went uh, away from saying, you know, look, there's this much money, billions of money of US dollars has been pumped into the project and uh, you know it went beyond the huge narrative of China is using this to gain uh, or, or this uh, Kenyan government is corrupt and so forth. It actually went to humanize the story as a colleague of ours said today and bring out the people perspective that was entirely missing and the guy had a flair of writing the story that was just quite captivating so that you know you you read i mean once you, re you started reading it you will want to stop reading it my uh, jeremy i think it's a hard choice to make there are so many but one that comes to mind is probably something that's similar to bob's in a, in a way but it's written by a chinese journalist and um, this one was written uh, Quite a few years ago, maybe three, four years ago, and it was written by a Chinese journalist Chen Xiaochen. And uh, he actually went to a sisal farm, a Chinese invested sisal farm in Tanzania. Sisal, like the. Uh the kind of uh, hampish yes, substance. Yes, exactly. Um, but what makes the story interesting is it's, it's, it's really, it's quite a long feature, but it's a story that tells the travails, the challenges, the arduous challenges of this uh, few Chinese farmers who set up this farm in Tanzania, not really having the support of anybody, really, not the Tanzanian government, really, there's not much support that was given them. These guys set up shops, set up farms, so to speak, in Tanzania, in this very rural community where there was nothing. There was literally nothing there. They set up the farm. They had, obviously, like they all do in Africa, they had labor issues. They had other kind of issues, and they pretty much persevered until eventually <laughs> the farm sort of became quite successful. That is really, for me, was the story of adventure, challenge, and ar arduous experiences and great challenges in Africa and ultimate overcoming. I might just probably point out another one that is one of those stories that has a more sort of negative ring to it. We were talking about gold mining earlier, and um, this is one of those examples of where a whole host of Chinese gold miners came from the one gold mining community in China and went all the way to Ghana, setting up a uh, sort of, you know, the, the gold mining small community in this, uh, in Ghana. And it's called, actually, they were called by the local name Galamzi, was the name given to them, which is sort of the semi-legal, pseudo-legal uh, gold mining activities going on there. And this is interesting for another case, and this is another case of Chinese uh, Chinese people, their experiences and their really great challenges of operating in Africa. This was an example of the gold miners in uh, Ghana 
and just the incredible difficulties they had trying to navigate the very difficult environment of regulation, of police bribery, of just trying to get ahead, and also the complexity of it. Because there's also the um, they they found great resistance among local among the local community who felt that they you know they came there they came there with their better technology with their better means of doing the gold mining, and some people felt that they were actually more damaging to the environment. And I think what makes it such an interesting story for me is that it, you know ultimately what it brings out is this great complexity of what is going on around us, of the impossibility of seeing you know things in a simple binary that it's China versus Africa or whatever the case might be. It's just a complex situation going on, on the ground, and sometimes you have it that these journalists are able to really go dig deep and bring out a complex, nuanced story of what's really going on. Okay, before I let you go, I actually do have one last, last question for Bob. So, is it you're from East Africa? You speak Swahili. You're not from the country south of Kenya. But how do you pronounce it? Is it Tanzania, Tanzania, or Tanzania? Uh, Tanzania. Okay. Right. <laughs> there we have it. The word from Bob. Barry and Bob, thank you very much, uh, both for the um, Africa-China Journalist uh, Forum today, which was a really great event, and for being on our podcast. And thank Thanks you, for Jeremy, for uh, for serving as the uh, MC. and I think you did a great job, and thank you very much. Oh, that's very kind. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now okay, let's uh, end this uh, podcast and go and grab some something to eat. <laughs> Is that on air as well? <laughs> My- and will it go ready? The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to An La Cheng and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.